Hi there, welcome along to High Performance, our gift to you for free every week. This podcast turns the lived experience of the planet's highest performers into life lessons for you. So allow the greatest thinkers, leaders, sports stars, entertainers and entrepreneurs to be your teacher. And one of the things I love about this podcast is that when we have a guest on who's a really big name, obviously we get good numbers because people want to hear from famous people. When we invite guests on who you may never have heard of before, it still makes no difference. We still get tens of thousands of downloads a day, hundreds of thousands of downloads a week. And for that, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for trusting us that we will only invite people onto this podcast who we know can give you amazing lessons to help transform your life. And you may not have heard of Steve Morgan, but trust me, by the end of today's episode, there'll be things that he's done in his incredibly successful life that will impact you. Here's what to expect. I used to dread the winter because it, you, you've only got eight hours of daylight in the winter and thought of working an eight-hour day was just like, what do you do with your rest of your life? You know, it's, it's just impossible. We all go through life with, with windows of opportunity um, and the thing to do is, is to take them when you've got them. I, mean, I had to think long and hard about it because it's counterintuitive. You work hard for all this money and then at the stroke of a pen you, uh, you give literally £300 million away. You know, I hear about this work-life balance, and, and that's fine. Um, and you can grow a career doing exactly that. But if you want to build a business, you've got to work. Nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to work. Now, we recorded this episode with Steve after the outbreak of coronavirus. And you know what? In early 2020, he pledged £1 million a week to charities to help vulnerable members of society coping with the fallout of the virus. And his support was credited as a lifeline for hundreds of charities, particularly food banks, support for homeless charities, domestic abuse and mental health organisations. And his foundation reported in December 2020, he'd given over £27 million to charities impacted by COVID-19. As well as that, he's personally donated hundreds of millions of pounds to charity. This is a guy who's been incredibly successful. But as you're about to hear over the next hour, he has never forgotten his roots i really hope you enjoy today's episode of the high performance podcast it comes next before we get going with today's episode let me just tell you what i'm up to with lotus cars this week as you know they're our founding partner you may also know that um, i'm involved in a charity here in norfolk called the community sport foundation and the kindness of lotus is remarkable they gave us gave us at the charity a lotus elise sport 240 final edition the first one off the production line and we then um, sold tickets for nine pounds each and the first name out of the hat was going to win the car we raised one hundred thousand pounds for the community sport foundation and this week i will go down to hethel and i will be giving the car to alex juggins who was the winner whose name was drawn out of the hat that's not bad is it a lotus elise for nine pounds um but it's just another example of a high performing company not only excelling in their area of expertise but also committing their time and energy to working with the community to understanding the importance of the community sport foundation and their work absolutely highlights the key aspects of a high-performing company, including kindness. I think sometimes we can forget how important that is. Thanks so much, Lotus. And you should follow them at Lotus Cars. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet, aims to unlock the very secrets to their high performance life so you can follow in their footsteps. With me as ever, lecturer, author, Professor Damien Hughes. And Damien, I think today's guest epitomises not just high performance, but also a high level of empathy and understanding. Definitely, Jake. I think um, what I'm really looking forward to exploring today's guest with is not only his success in his chosen domain, but the reinvention of himself to want to give back. And to, there's an old saying that, you know, a sign of a healthy society is how we help the more vulnerable. And this person has got that empathy to do that. Okay, let's explain some more then and find out the tricks, the behaviours, the mindset and the belief required to take a small building firm into a FTSE 250 business, the bravery to then step down as chairman and then to return and save the struggling firm, the ambitious mindset that led to our guest trying to buy Liverpool Football Club, who he supported as a boy and eventually acquiring Wolverhampton Wanderers and helping take them into the Premier League. Yet through all these business deals, maintaining an empathy and an emotional connection to the city from where he came from that has led to him giving over £300 million to charity through his own foundation. What a fascinating life. So how has he done it and what can you learn from him? Welcome to the podcast, Steve Morgan. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. Lovely to be here. What is high performance? I think high performance really is, is, is different things to different people. For me... I don't think I'm particularly skilled at anything, so I have to do it with with uh, endeavour. Uh, so I think hard work, uh, I've always been hard working, even as a kid I did two paper rounds, worked every single school holiday, I just always, always, always worked. So graft to me is a, is the uh, probably the, the, the individual one. And, and my, my wife always says to me that... Uh, I've got more drive. It just everything I do, I do to the absolute ultimate. And I think so. Drive and, and hard work for me. Other people can do it with skill as well. I'm I'm, I'm probably lacking in that part. But uh, <laughs> what's great there, though, is for people listening to this who think there's a secret to living a high performance life or a secret to achieving what you really want. And I will go on to talk about the dreams you had as a boy that you did manage to achieve. The great thing about what you've just said is that if it is drive and desire and will and effort and graft and heart, anyone can do it. Literally anyone can do it. When I started Red Row, it was uh, uh, on a sewer contract and I was down in the trenches, laying the drains myself, driving the JCB, laying the concrete. It wasn't a glamorous start and I, to my mind, I, I did it and did it tried to do it better than anybody else and uh, first five years I, I made all uh, the, the business was laying sewers so it's not the most glamorous of starts but uh, I think 
every day I got up, I used to start work from seven till seven, uh, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and, uh, always had the appetite and the, the hunger to want to do more. But you also had the ambition because there'll be lots of people that would have started a business laying sewer pipes. They would have worked incredibly hard at it and they would have had hard graft for 50, 60 years and retired laying sewer pipes. What was it about you or where had the seeds been sown where you were thinking, well, this is fine for now, but my ambitions are grand. I think, you know, you have luck on, on, the, uh, on the way. And my piece of luck uh, was actually Margaret Thatcher. She came into power, and by that time we'd we'd gone on to do some building works, uh, contracting mainly, uh, and, and we built a few council houses and uh, housing association properties. But when Margaret Thatcher came in, she put a, an axe through public spending and uh, made us look elsewhere, and that that was that was my lucky break. Uh, yeah, but you capitalised on it. That that same thing happened to many people who didn't do what you've you've then done. So. Is it only luck? Well, I think it was, what it did is it forced a change and I'm delighted that it forced a change. So I, at, the, at the time I cursed the policies that she introduced, but uh, with hindsight, it was the best thing that ever, ever happened to me. It was uh, really made me find myself because instead of being told what to do as a contractor and these are the plans and that's the price and you've got to get on with it, I was able to go and choose the piece of land we were buying uh, to design what was on there and gave me a, I didn't realize I had a creative side I got thrown out of art classes at a very early age I'm useless at art but I found that I had a, a creativity and uh, built in Redrow the the best brand in the housing market and the most desired brand in the housing market and that's come from my desire to always want to do better when we build a great house i'm going through i'm like i'm a pain in the backside i'm going through it now that plug socket needs to be a foot closer to there to help you know to because it would suit better the light switch no no let's let's move it i meant that into every last detail it showed me that i actually did have some creativity in me and uh but it was a lucky break that got me there so can i take you back to your origins in many ways, Steve, on this, because we're in a city in Liverpool where uh, famously Paul McCartney tells a story that he went to school for years and nobody ever knew that he could sing. So he never made the school choir because nobody had recognised that he had that talent or that interest. And you speak about you discovered relatively late after education that you had this creativity. Would you tell us a little bit about your background then in terms of this hard work, this drive, where it came from? You know, we always talk about nature or nurture. Um, I, I think in my case, it's it's predominantly nature. I had a, a fairly tough upbringing as a kid. My father was um, in the RAF, in National Service, but, and uh, met my mum, who was only 17 at the time, and uh, mum was eight, only 18 when I was born. So they clearly had no money whatsoever. Uh, so we lived in a, a two-up, two-down in, in, uh, under the bridge in in Garston we didn't have electric we didn't have uh, toilets and it was in fact I was seven years old before I knew what an inside toilet was I went to nine different schools I lived in nine different houses before I was 16 I was constantly new kid on the block and I I think you know it's uh, 
it's quite tough being a new kid on the block when you don't know anybody. And uh, I was there many, many times. And was that because your dad was in the forces? No, so. no, he, he left the forces when I, when I was about uh, four years old. But he, first of all, we were living with my, my grandparents, so um, uh, they understandably wanted to get out of there. We went, we went to live in a caravan. The Caligas bottle kept failing, so that mean, <laughs> meant no light because you had these little wick candle things. But I can remember all those things. And, and I think... Uh, looking back, it was probably the fact that I constantly had to adapt as a kid. You know, going to new, to nine different schools is, you know, in Liverpool it's a, it's a tough city, it's a great city, but it's a tough city and everybody wants to try the new boy out, don't they? And, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of toughens you up, you fight or, or flight, and uh, I've always done the former. Is that where your resilience was, was formed, do you think? I, I think it helped. I think it, it definitely helped. Um, you constantly had to be on, on your wits as, as, the, as the new kid. And as I say, the new kid, everybody wants to try the new kid out. And, uh, and, and there wasn't many new kids, actually, in those days, because there wasn't the same mobility. So it definitely did. It certainly made me not afraid of anything. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that has helped me in my, my, my later life. So do you see any sort of pattern of, even unconsciously, the fact that you made your career by building solid foundations for families with homes, and yet you lived such a nomadic existence for the first 16 years? Maybe subliminally, but I enjoy housing. I really enjoy it. I left in Red Row in 2000. I went back in 2009 to basically to save the, the company from going under. I left 18 months ago, and guess what? About three weeks ago, I bought another house-building company. So I, <laughs> I, I guess I can't keep out oh, of it, really. I think I'm, I'm really, uh, I think it's very much in the blood. So um, it could well be, Damien, maybe that is subliminally uh, there, and not consciously, though. Yeah, it's fascinating. Let's, let's discuss Red Row, then. Um, you, you started this by describing luck that came your way. You're only going to make good use of any luck with lots of hard work for people listening to this that want to set their own businesses up or maybe already run their own businesses and are struggling somewhat can you give us an insight into the hard work and the sacrifice from you and and i guess your partner at, at that time and how hard it was it was very hard because i started redrow in uh, november 74 i was only 21 myself um and I was as green as grass, you know, absolutely didn't have a bloody Can that not clue. be helpful sometimes, that naivety? Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. It's, it can be helpful because you're not afraid of anything. And I wasn't afraid of anything anyway because I didn't have anything, so I had nothing to lose. Um, and my, my, my father helped me out with some finances, basically to pay the wages until we, we, we got a draw from the contract. Uh, and then to, and to buy materials. And, of course, as a new kid, nobody would give you credit, so you had to buy everything, cash on delivery and, and everything. That helped me out. And I got through it, really tore through it, and then realised at the end of it I had no work. Um, and so it, I had a few guys with me and, and no work. And uh, anyway, the company I was working for previously, who whose contract it was that I did it as a subcontract for, said, oh, actually, we've got other jobs we need finishing off. So they kept me going for a couple of years until such time as I got um, other contract work. But I think it was more naivety. I never knew anything other than hard work. I never knew anything other than getting up at uh, five, six o'clock in the morning and, and getting out of the house and being on site for seven and 
uh, working all the daylight hours. Um, I used to dread the winter because it, you, you've only got eight hours of daylight in the winter and thought of working an eight-hour day was just like, what do you do with the rest of your life? You know, it's, it's just impossible. I think it was tough on my first two kids from my first marriage because I didn't see them. And how uh, old were you when you had them? Uh, 25 with, when I had my... So you'd really only just started, the business was in its infancy. Yeah, it was, it, yeah the business was very much in, in its infancy. Um, we were still very much contracting, civil engineering contracting at the time. Uh, and then two years later, my daughter was born. So uh, um, they hardly saw me as a kid uh, until 1991, 92, and I took them out of school and went around the world for six months, took a sabbatical. and what prompted uh, that? Well, at the time... We'd, um, Red Road now become a, quite a successful house builder, still private company. And uh, I'd, I'd seen the recession coming, but that time we'd expanded into the southeast of England. Uh, and the southeast of England was going crazy. Uh, um, Nigel Lawson had put a, a, a had ended Myra, double Myra's relief, which had caused a, a mini boom in the housing market. Well, not a mini boom, it was a massive boom, actually. And uh, it, house price inflation went to 25% overnight. And I looked at this, we couldn't get labor to work because every, prices were going up almost by the day. The north of England was, was nothing like this and the rest of the business was behaving fairly normally. But it's the southeast that was on a, a huge regional boom. And I said, this is unsustainable, sold out in the southeast. Uh, so that took the company back into cash in the bank. So when the recession started to bite in 89, 90, um, we were sat there with money in the bank ticking over nicely because the North kept kept going and we, we were well established in the North of England. And uh, by 91, I was bored, completely bored out my brains because although the recession was really it, it, probably at its peak, land prices were still far too high. So you couldn't buy land. We had enough land in the north of England, so, there, so the, the thrill for me is doing the deals, and there was no deals to be done. So I was getting up in the morning, and what are we doing? Oh, yes, we're going to build some more houses today. And for me, that's that's no challenge at all. I need I need yeah. to be doing better and better and better. And I was bored out my brain. So we had one rainy Sunday morning in uh, probably about March time, and I said to Pam, my wife, I said, I can't, I can't, it's just driving me nuts, this, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not busy enough. I said, how do you fancy going around the world? And she, she, she said, you, you've had, how much you, you drank? <laughs> so money wasn't your driver because the business was doing well. The business was doing very well. I was boredom was my driver. Right, so money didn't give you the, enough of a thrill. You need more in your life. No, I, there, there was nothing to do because in recessions, it, even a recession has a cycle. Uh, first of all, it's, firefighting everywhere and then and it, then it, it goes flat uh, and people don't realize that this is a, there's a new reality here and then when they people do realize a new reality things like in our game house prices drop land prices drop tremendously then all of a sudden it gets exciting again and then you then you gear up for the phoenix really for coming out but all through you can you we, we traded we were making money we we're making very good money but we weren't expanding and without expanding that was no use to me so i said i know i've had a couple of glasses of wine but I said but we're doing it and so for the next three months i planned a trip we went to 22 different countries around the world don't forget it was, it was pre-mobile phones and, and everything pre-internet 
So we had to plan everything meticulously because we went to places, uh, we didn't go to the tourist places, we went to places that nobody had ever seen. We were one of the first tourists back into Beijing following the Tiananmen Square wow. massacre. Okay. My kids were the first kids ever to go overland from Tibet. We went right through Tibet, through to Nepal. But uh, why did you want to do this with, with your children? To give them something that they could never get in their life. I was with my daughter this week. It was her 40th birthday this week, and uh, she still talks about oh, that mate. world trip. Gives me goosebumps. They both had birthdays on the trip, their 10th birthday and their 12th birthday, respectively, and they still talk about it. And I made them write it. The quid pro quo for me was I always... The, 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 the kids were brilliant at mental arithmetic because I was as we, wherever we were, I'd be throwing them questions all the time. And they had to write a daily diary. That was the deal. Non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. Wherever you were, and we we used to have these um, uh, Lonely Planet books, and they say, right, this is where we're going today, and uh, so let's let's do some research about it and, and do the history. And, and they had to write a minimum of two pages. My, my eldest lad got cute and his writing just became bigger. <laughs> so I said, no, no, that's now three pages if you want to do that. Um, so, so it's two pages of, of diary writing per day. Um, and uh, they hated it at first, but actually they really got into it. And those diaries became um, something that they, 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 they look back on in later life. See, what fascinates me about that, Steve, is that given the busy, frenetic life that you'd led... Up to then, this sounds to me like this is one of the first times that you've learned to put your foot on the ball and slow down. What did that period give you? Well, we didn't slow down. We did it at a thousand mile an hour. But what did that period give you, though? So apart, so whilst it maybe wasn't a change of pace, what what did you learn about yourself in that period? Well, I think the most important thing it gave me was was a catch up with my kids. Um, it was. Great fun to spend six months, twenty four seven with them, uh, and to have adventure. You know, it was an adventure that, that I'm pleased to say no other kids really have done. Well, you couldn't do it today, even if you wanted to. You couldn't do it today, and it would be so different today because the bloody mobile phones mm. going and you know and the, the internet. We were lucky. I'm, I'm so pleased that we did it in, at a time when there was no phones and there was no internet. Yeah, um, because it. Looking back, it really added something. We've only been speaking for a short amount of time, but I think already I'm getting the impression that you're not someone who spends his life waiting for the perfect moment to make a decision. And I've got lots of friends around me where I say, oh, you should be doing this. And they say, well, I don't think it's the right time. And it's whether you set your own business up at 21, whether it's having kids when you've got a fledgling business that's only four years old, whether it's making the decision to change the way your business operates because of an, an incoming recession, whether it's just disappearing off around the world for six months. You don't seem to me like someone who overthinks or waits for the perfect moment to do something. You just decide it feels right and you go for it. Is that fair? I've always, always been counterintuitive. So when the herd are going one way, I'll probably be one of the forefront of that herd at the, at the beginning. And then you get to a point where you see there's too many people following that. Let's have a look back. And frequently, I'll do the complete opposite. I was the only house builder that sold out in the southeast in in '88. The only one. In fact, there was a I remember a newspaper article in the Express uh, where where um, the, the journalist said that Morgan's taken his back and bat and ball home to the north because he can't stand the heat in the southeast kitchen. 
Uh, you arsehole. So, sorry, I've done this. Just say it's fine. And uh, I remember seeing that same journalist years later um, and uh, said, do you remember that article you wrote? And he said, I do. And he wrote a retraction in fairness to him. Um, but in 93, I went back into the southeast and bought Costain Homes when everybody else was, was uh, going bust. Uh, by the time, remember I said before about the, about the way cycles work, and it, it, if you if you wait for things to happen, you've missed the boat. Really, you've, you've missed it too late. You, you've you've got to be there in front. So now went back in. We bought Costain Homes, who just lost a hundred million pounds yeah. um, over the previous three years. Uh, picked it up at a song, and that was Red Row back in the southeast again. So, what are your tools that you employ to make those kinds of decisions? Because that's quite scary to buy a business that's lost £100 million, and that's why lots of people wouldn't do it. What processes do you go through? I, I like to think that I weigh things up. Um, I, I had a discussion with my ex-colleagues at uh, Redrow, who were very, very cautious during this pandemic. And um, I understand why they were reluctant to open up again um, after lockdown. I didn't have a fallout with them, but I, I, I had certainly different uh, views. And I said, guys, get out there, start building. The sales will be there. And uh, nobody believed me. And had I been at Red Row, we'd have started work six weeks before they actually did. I was completely right. Uh, the housing market is actually quite strong at the moment. Um, I wouldn't have bought McBride Homes three weeks ago, four weeks ago, if I hadn't thought that the housing market was strong, because this recession that we're in now is about a pandemic. It's not about economic conditions. Mm. Many people have suffered badly, badly in this. And if you're in the, in the leisure industry and the travel industry, oh, my God, you've, you, you're having a torrid time at the minute. I know because I've got Carden Park Hotel and it, we're fighting it all the time. And, but... If you're not, you know, people were furloughed. They were on 80% of the money, but they weren't commuting backwards and forwards. They, were, they weren't going out to pubs, restaurants, spending money. They weren't going on foreign holidays. Lots of people are actually better off. And if you think about it logically, you say, well, actually, why wouldn't the housing market be good? You've got, you've got virtually nil interest rates. Mortgage payments have never been lower. Why, why wouldn't it? And there's massive demand. I mean, the country needs millions of new homes. So why wouldn't the housing market be good? And it is. See, what fascinates me about your answer here, Steve, is that you obviously see a bigger picture. So you talk about these these patterns or these cycles that you describe. So if somebody was listening to this, how do they gain perspective to be able to look at the big picture and see these patterns rather than get stuck in the moment and find themselves being reactive and responsive to events? Maybe this does go back to my childhood. I've never really thought about it. But when, as a kid, I was thrown into circumstances, I used to say, well, you know, I'm not afraid of this. We're just going to have to have a go. And, and that includes many a scrape on the streets. You just have a go. You just, you just get stuck in. So I think when you're in these situations, you've just got to think it through. Just think it through. And then I always think follow your conviction. You know, if you if you if you believe in yourself, just do it. I've heard it described the three eyes of a 
Uh, I've heard business analysts describe it as there's some people that are initiators, some that are imitators, and then there's the idiots that follow. And it sounds very much that you're in that that first initiator bit. You make things happen by stepping back and looking at patterns before you then commit fully. Well, it, it's funny you should say that, Damien, because I always think in the past when the property guys, i.e. the commercial property guys, start getting into housing, then you know it's time to get out. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about your, your brother who passed away in a motorcycle accident? Yeah. How much did that reframe your perspective on life? It completely changed my life. You know, I'm not a religious person, but my look totally changed when, when Jimmy died. We were really short of work. And as I say, I'm, I'm not a person that can sit still uh, at all. I've, I've, I've always got to be doing something. Um, and I, I didn't have enough work. And that was in 1977. Uh, and so I decided... I bought some Rolls Royces, actually, uh, old old ones, old, old bangers, and the, the, the pounds of the dollar was almost one-to-one. And I, I, you know what? I can sell these out in America for twice the price, and literally they were double the price out, out in America. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll go out there. I went out to America, went to California, really loved it. I thought, looked at what they were doing out there, and I thought, you know what, we can seriously do some damage out here and uh, so Pam and I decided to emigrate to California I'm not qualified at anything so I couldn't get a visa but she could because she was she was a uh, an SRN she was a trained nurse she had a job lined up we were all set to go and then tragically my brother got killed in a motorbike accident he was only 17 uh, he went to pick up his, his pal from work and um, a car pulled out in front of him and and, and, and that was that my mom was just going through a divorce with my, my dad at the time, was just beside herself, almost suicidal, really. She, she was completely beside herself. Jimmy was the only one, last one living at home. My sister had already married and gone. Uh, I'd already gone. And um, we said, you know, we can't do this. We, we're going to have to stay because I, can't, I can't, just can't leave her. And uh, again, it was one of those lucky breaks for me because I, to me it was like Jimmy pulling the strings from heaven because my look completely changed almost on the spot. Um, we got a contract and there was no contracts around. We got a £40,000 contract to put a footpath right round the Great Orm in Llandudno. Now, 40000 doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but in those days for us, it was a massive, massive job. And that saw us through the winter and then the work just kept coming in. And, and also, the decision not to go to California, we decided to start a family. So nine months later, my uh, um, literally 10 months after Jimmy died, my eldest son was born. Wow. So it, it, it was life-changing. So from tragedy, something really good happened. But most of all, as I said, it was like Jimmy pulling strings because literally the work started flooding in. Do you still feel that's happening? Is it something you've carried with you? I don't sort of think a bit of luck and say, well, that's Jimmy doing it again. But, you know, I, I, I do thank my lucky stars, really, that uh, I have had um, lucky opportunities in my life. Um, but in saying that, it, it, I think opportunities are like windows. And, and there's too many people walk past windows with blinkered eyes and don't see them, don't see the window of opportunity. That's why I find interesting. You talk about luck. You must have mentioned luck or lucky 20 times. These opportunities appear 
for everyone. The people that don't take them are the people that don't have the, the frame of mind that the opportunity is there. You're, you're not lucky. You're an opportunity finder. Uh, yeah, and, and that's, as I think we all go through life with, with windows of opportunity. Um, and the thing to do is, is to take them when you've got them. Um, because how do people see them? People that don't see opportunities at the moment, how do, how do you reframe your thinking to see an opportunity? Is it basically being an optimist? I think believing in yourself is uh, very important. What's your don't, self-belief don't, like? I'm not cocky at all in, in, in the sense that uh, I believe in following my instinct, but um, in many ways I don't believe in myself at all. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm rubbish at most things really, but uh, if I see something I'm willing to go, I absolutely follow it. And by the way, I've got a few wrong on the way. I had a big investment in Eastern Europe when I was out of red between 2000 and 2009, um, from about 2005, six, seven, and oh my God, I got my fingers burnt. And, uh, you know, that, that cost me a lot of money. So I've had my, I've had my cock-ups but on the way. It doesn't stop you from doing it again? No, stick to your knitting. I think yeah. it's one of my sayings, stick to your knitting. Like and, and actually what, what made me think I could go to, to places like Turkey and, and um, Romania and Poland and, 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 and outsmart the locals, you know, I, I didn't. I got, a, I got a good thick ear and, you know, you've got to learn from that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The stuff around Jimmy's death really fascinates me because of how you how you frame what Jake was asking around there about that optimism. And do you think there was something around a sense of perspective that it gave you that, you know, to see your brother pass away at 17? Do you think it shaped your view of the world of these opportunities? You saw the life that he could have had and the opportunities that he had, and it just opened your eyes to those opportunities that are out there, like building the, the footpath and the contracts well, it, that came. It, 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 it shocked me to the foundations, actually. It shocked the whole family uh, because you know, like 17-year-old saw him earlier on the day, you know, waved to him and he pulled tongues at me. And, you know, the shock of something like that coming right out of the blue uh, completely was a reality check for me because, I, you know, I was only... 24 myself and uh i can still remember them feel the, the, the shock of it all today uh and it was a huge reality check and i think it did make me think and certainly the decision not to move to california we took within within a month of of his death and uh, it was it was the right thing to do and uh, as i say it, i it, it was jimmy i think pulling strings and, and changing it for us can we talk about your involvement in football? Yeah. You talk about stick to your knitting. Yeah. Sticking to your knitting is not trying to buy a Liverpool football club, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> You're quite right. No, even I can break my own rules. <laughs> but I think I've got that stick to the knitting by breaking my own rules and seeing that, uh, 
Um, the, you, you know, it can't necessarily transfer skills. What I love about this story is you grew up in Liverpool. It's your city. Liverpool Football Club is your football club. The ambition to just say, I'm going to buy it. I want to go and buy that football club. I love that. It comes back to the way you've lived your whole life, which is blue sky, big thinking, right? Yeah. Why didn't it happen? Well, it nearly did, very nearly did. The truth has never come out about what actually happened. I tried to buy it for a couple of years before we eventually did strike a deal, and which was, which was the summer of 2004. And the deal was not to buy it, was to buy a controlling interest of it. It was 51%. And the deal was £70 million pounds for 51%. So it valued the club at £140 million. And it, if you look on Wikipedia today, it, tried, it says I tried to buy the club for 60. It was just rubbish. Mm. Um, it, was, it was 70, and that was split between 35 million for existing shareholders and 35 million cash injection into the club because the club was in major debt. And people have said to me, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. At the time, the turnover was just 100 million. The losses were 22 million that year. The club was in big debt. Sky or the TV money was about 30 million. And so if you, yeah, with, with, with the crystal ball, you'd say, you know, why, why didn't you go ahead and do the deal? But when we were told at the start of the deal, the losses were going to be about 5 million or so this year. So we weren't expecting it to be great. And with due diligence, it was 22 million, not five. Big difference. Plus, there was capitalization of spend on the new stadium, which never transferred, but it was more money going on. So at the end of it, I, I said, well, we'll still do the deal. We'll still do 51% and we'll still do the 70 million. But I said, I, I, to me, the club needs more money, needs more cash, and I can't afford any more than 70 million. So the deal was changed to 50 million to go into the club and so 20 million to the existing shareholders because the club needed the money, needed the investment. And anyway, the existing shareholders re refused the, to, to change the deal, even though the, the due diligence gave us the reality, something very different to what was presented when we, when we effectively shook hands on it. So that's why it didn't go ahead. Interesting. But you speak about that you follow your instincts and a lot of it is about logic. And yet the numbers that you present in there, Steve, would scream to walk away from a deal like that. So what was the driver to want to keep? As you quite rightly say, Damien, Liverpool Football Club was the club I, almost from the day I could talk, was a, day, a club I supported. So it was passionate to me. And I also was probably arrogant enough to think that I could change it round but that's why I needed the 50 million in the club I felt we could change it they needed some new players Rafa Benitez had just been appointed before me um, but I think Rafa Benitez was probably the right man for the time and you know later a year later when uh, Istanbul happened he proved that he was the right man for the job and uh, uh, and there were some fantastic young players on the, the side none better than Stevie Gerrard who uh, um, was just a phenomenal player, but they also had some real 
duffers and the, the high high pressure signings, high cost signings that, that actually needed to be got out of the club and it went, and knew it was going to cost and that was more losses to come. But that's why I felt the club needed 50 million, not 35 million to, to get it forward. And I think, you know, had the deal been done, I would have gone forward very happily and God only knows what the history of Liverpool Football Club would have looked like. I'll never know. Nobody will ever know what it what would. Do you happen. allow regret into your life? Because what I find interesting about this, if it was you've just bought a, another house building company, if you that wasn't a heart decision, that was a head decision. Mm. Buying Liverpool was a heart decision, not a head decision. So when it doesn't happen, do you allow yourself to even now sit there and think, "Oh, I could have bought that club, could have done this, could have done that," or is that just wasted energy? Jake, that's not something I ever do. That's uh, one of my philosophies in life. Move on. Move on from good things and bad things. You have to move on. Never look back. Don't look in the, uh, uh, the rearview mirror. Um, you learn uh, first from that. Oh, you learn. Oh, you, you, I think you've got to learn. What did I take home from that deal? It was the one that got away. You know, had you had a crystal ball and know that within just a few years, the, the TV money was going to multiply but it didn't know it was. I was looking at tens of millions of losses in the club. Had you know that the, the sponsorship and, and uh, commercial deals and, and, and worldwide TV rights, etc., were coming down the corridor, of course you'd have done the deal. I never looked back on success either because my philosophy, when we do something, we, we really have a great year, say, so, well... Yeah, we've got to beat that next year, and uh, and you just got to keep going. Do you still enjoy it though? You take time to enjoy the successes, or not? I enjoy success. I enjoy the success of Redro. I enjoy the success of of creating more for the shareholders. One of the most fascinating things for me was the the year before I left Redro. The year, my last year, we built our hundred thousandth house, which, if you take an average, you know, about three point two people per house bearing in mind we build family houses mainly it's equivalent to a city the size of nottingham or newcastle i did allow myself to say you know what bugger you know for I, I, well done and I, I and i never say that the lad that grew up in a house without a toilet has built yeah hundred thousand of them built a city the size of newcastle um wow uh, it's uh uh, no, I, I, I took a great deal of pride in, in just that achievement. Um, but generally, I don't look back, I look forward. And football did come your way through Wolverhampton Wanderers. Yeah. Why did you want to do that then? Because you didn't support them. Well, funnily enough, as a kid, when everything was black and white, TV was black and white and uh, newspapers were black and white, to, to see the colours of kits... You only saw it actually in in uh, yeah. on bubblegum cards, and and I always used to think that the the, the wolves kit. I loved the kit colour, you know, the oh, yeah. and the name as a kid when you you know when you're sort of six, seven, eight years old, uh, wolves, and wolves were right up there to the, yeah. the the top, and I thought, wow, that's a, a great thing, and and the logo with the wolf head, and you know, as a seven year old, it was very impressionable, and. Uh, so it was always my second team. I always, always looked out for it. So I, I spent my whole life always looking at second, second result was always Wolves. And then um, I went there to a, to a match. I was invited to a match. And I got pounced upon by the Wolves directors. And they said, you've got to buy this club. I know you didn't buy Liverpool. You've got to buy this club. 
Now, I'd been approached by 15 different clubs after the, the Liverpool deal fell away, which I won't name, but many of them are in the Premier League right now. But I, I, I didn't have the interest uh, in, in, in going to them. But what was I thought? You know what? Where I live, I'm only an hour away from the ground. It's always been my soft team, and the deal was very good. I mean, the deal was by the, the, the club for £10. Was this from Jack Haywood and for, his family? For Jack yeah. Haywood, yeah. He yeah. was a lovely, lovely guy. Uh, but to put money in, he couldn't run the club and he was looking for somebody. He had a very tight stipulation. He would only sell it to an English person who loved football and who could put money in. And I think I ticked those boxes. So uh, uh, I did the deal with, with, with Jack. And yeah, I had nine years at, at Wolves. Very interesting years indeed. What did you learn most about running a football club? It's bloody tough. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of businessmen get into it yep. and suddenly look like bad businessmen because it, it struggles. Why do people get it so wrong and what did you learn? Well, I, rightly or wrongly, I run the club as a business. The club had some debt, not, 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 not huge, but it was uh, certainly six, seven million pounds or something. But it didn't own its own ground. It didn't own the land around the ground. And as a property person, I think, uh-oh. and one of the leases literally had two or three years to go and it, uh, quite frankly could have closed the club down if we didn't get it sorted. So I set about getting all the freehold around the ground. So the club now sits in a 12-acre freehold island. We didn't even have any lease on the where the away coaches go. We, we just had a very loose agreement. So I had to get that sorted out. Um, and I gave Mick McCarthy, who was the manager at the time, a purse to go and buy some players. We just missed out on promotion in my first season, but the second second season we we won the championship. Um, we got in first position by the end of August and never lost it we get all the way through the season uh, and won the league comfortably. I think by about ten points. Uh, so that was us back in the Premier League, and that was Wolves had only been back in the Premier League once in the previous thirty years. It was great. It was fantastic. The op- optimism round and. You know, you think you walk on water the second season. Oh, yeah, we won. You get a reality check when you go in the Premier League and uh, and, and then the agents come knocking on the door and, uh, and demand increased wages for all the all the players and and the, the demands go ridiculous. And I thought, oh, is this not, not a world I'm used to? But you have to get used to it pretty quick. Do you know what I think is interesting about successful businessmen that buy football clubs, right? Is that you you work hard on the business side of the football club. You just talked about buying the 12 acres and sorting out the coaches and looking after the, the stadium and the training ground, right? But that's not the sexy stuff. No. All people talk about with football is the players, the manager, the results, the performances, which you can't get involved in. That's the strange sort of dichotomy of... Being a businessman that owns a football club, the best bit, you're, you get no access. That's a really frustrating bit, I can tell you. And on the whole, I did leave it to the manager, although I had a, always had a healthy relationship with the, with the managers and talked to them all the time. And we, uh, the, the chief exec there, I, I was on the phone with you know, four or five times a week about buying players, selling players, etc. So you, you're heavily, heavily oh, I was heavily, very heavily involved with it. And I had the business, I had um, Wolves for nine years. And over the nine years, and when we had years when we made profits, we had years when we made losses. But over a nine-year view, we didn't lose any money. And I was able to buy all the, the land back in, build a new stand, 
build a, an academy which which is as good as any in the Premier League. Uh, so I'm very proud of that achievement. But Jake, what you said is completely right. The fans want to see results on the pitch, and if you're not spending money all the time, then the fans are not happy. And we had three years in the Premier League, which is, as I said, was was much longer than they had over the previous thirty odd years. I did two bad appointments as as managers, and um, we had a double relegation down to League One, uh, and that was that was a real tough time, and with the fans, etc. And then I had one of the most enjoyable years I've ever had uh, in, involved in football, and that was when we, we were in League One, and we hammered everybody. <laughs> we literally hammered everybody and won the league by with 103 points, which I think was the record. And it was fantastic going home every Saturday, having won three, four, five, one or something. And uh... so we've had some coaches on here. Uh, whether these are young coaches like Frank Lampard or or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, or or, or some more experienced coaches like uh, Sean Wayne from rugby league. And one of the common themes that come out in our discussions is the need to manage upwards, to to speak to the decision makers and get time and patience. Now, as the guy that is making those decisions, can you give us some insight that those coaches could have of how can they manage upwards effectively? How could a coach make sure that you're on board with what they're trying to do to give them the air cover and the space and time to be able to implement their ideas? What what we did right from the onset is decide how we were going to run Wolves. Now, I was never going to put bottomless amounts of money in to uh, the club as an investment. So we had to be smart. And for me, the idea of being smart was to, to grow your own. And there have been plenty of successful clubs who've done, done well by doing that. One of the early things that we did was to strongly enhance the academy. But we also had some close relationships with, with smaller clubs um, who, when there was... A, a bright young star coming through them. There was a further budget to buy in 15, 16 year olds and, and, and bring them into the. Matt Doherty was one um, who's just been sold to, to Spurs, but uh, we signed Matt as a 16 year old. So that was my way forward. Now, we sat down with the manager at the time and, uh, and we used to probably get, have dinner together once a month. So it's regular dialogue. Regular dialogue, absolutely regular dialogue, yeah. For me, that's the only way it works. I think other people have, have different views and, and, and they can make it work for them. But for us, it was, a, it, it was a team effort. And I always think, actually, having communication, communication is so important, whatever you're doing in life, and communicating what your plans are for the team and getting everybody to buy into that, I think is massively important. Not just in football, but in business as well. How do you deal with or make the decision to let certain people go and then how do you make sure you bring the right people into your businesses, into your life? Do you know, that's one of the hardest things you, you can do. Um, I, I remember uh, early days of Redro um, having a buyer who, we'd never had a buyer, I did all the buying and we, we, were, growing, we were growing literally 100% per annum at one, one stage. I remember bringing in a buyer and uh, thinking, well, this guy really knows what he's doing. He, he produced wonderful schedules, which I'd never did. I was brought in a professionalism to the business. Oh, wow, that's great. And then two years later, we doubled and then doubled again. 
he'd had to bring in an assistant and, and, and then another buyer as well. So we were growing so fast. And then I suddenly realised this guy I was very fond of was actually not a number one. He would have been a very good number two, but his number two we brought in was much more efficient than, than he was. And I, it was one of, one of my lessons about over-promoting somebody because our chief buyer was actually not our best buyer at all. And uh, I had to have a very painful conversation with him, which I can still remember to this day. It really taught me a lesson about over-promoting people. And, and, and um, when you make a mistake, you've got to deal with it. Uh, as soon as you realise you've got a, you've made a mistake, that you just get on and deal with it. Ditto with football and the managers. You know, Mick did a great job for the club, but I think was losing. Definitely lost it with the fans, and um, I think the final straw. We lost five one at home to West Brom. Well, that's like Liverpool losing five one at home to Manchester United. You know, it's it it it, it it's the holy grail. You cannot you cannot do that, and uh, so we had to have that very sad uh, conversation but it had you know it was the right thing to do and no regrets about about doing it but uh, yeah you've got to stand up to reality really and my other question about that period is about external validation I often feel sorry for owners of football clubs because when it goes well credit the manager credit the players when it goes badly get rid of the owner did it exactly. bother you <laughs> that you put all that time, all that effort, all that money into Wolves, and then as soon as things go badly, people are just looking for the next owner, the next person to come and put money in? Or does that external validation from people not bother you? Yes, I think it does bother me. You wouldn't be human if you said it, it didn't. And it did bother me, but, it, you know, it wasn't to the point where I was sort of losing sleep over it or anything. But I also, my life was changing. I'd uh, I just got together with my new girlfriend who was now my wife and um, my priorities were were changing I think because of that because I was well back in Red Row and and uh, um, that, that was taking a, you know quite a bit of time and and I, I was thinking well you know what I've done nine years I've, have I done my bit I've, ca I've carried the baton through I'm leaving the club in a much much better position than uh, than where I uh, where I found it uh, and it's been good fun and time to move on, really. Before we finish, I, I want to talk about your philanthropy. Making a lot of money is praiseworthy, but it kind of just happens if you run a successful business. Giving away a third of a billion pounds to charity isn't something that just happens. That is a conscious decision. First of all, well done for having the mindset of giving 300 million pounds to charity. I'm just so interested in why you've done that. Again, it probably comes back to my roots. I've been very successful in life. I've, you know, I, I go to nice places. I live in a nice house and etc. But I never forgot where I grew up, and some of the kids I grew up with who, who had a different future in front of them. I think what got me into it probably in the first place was uh, I got introduced to Alder Hay Hospital, who were trying to build a new oncology unit, and I. Uh, I said, well, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to help them with this. So I gave up my salary and bonuses in the 90s and put everything I, I earned uh, into trying to fund this oncology unit. I ended up walking across... Why was that? Did you have a personal connection to... No, I just got unit? introduced to it and I, and, and I went there and, and, and I met the team that, that ran it and, uh, and, and I saw some of the young kiddies who just gone through chemo and lost their hair and uh, it got to me. It completely got to me. 
I've got to help these kids out and, and any other kids that come along. And then it, that the whole thing sort of got me thinking about my background and, and uh, I have got to start giving something in back in life. And I, I, I raised a million pounds for Alder Hay uh, back in the 90s. Uh, did a Guinness Book of Records walk from, from um, Mediterranean to the Atlantic across the Pyrenees. Raised 360,000 for them. Uh, but then that, that sort of started a chain reaction. There was a young boy on the ward called George, and I took a pair of hobnail boots in for a photo opportunity, and it was, it was a lovely photo of me and George in, in, in these sort of size 12 boots, not, not mine, by the way, <laughs> but, uh, um, and it, which, which went on, on all the papers at the time. And uh, I was very fond of little George, and he sadly died on... We, well, we, we were told literally as we were flying out to the, to the Pyrenees to do the walk that uh, we probably wouldn't be here by the time we got back and uh, it sort of broke my heart. We had a few rough days on that, uh, particularly the, the first couple of days where it was, we were up in the several thousand metres up and it was blizzarding and it was horrible cold and, and, we, and George just got us all the way through it. Amazing. And not long after that, I... Uh, I left Red Row and I felt, you know, I've got to set something up. I've got to set a foundation up to give him back. I put, I think, £5 million in at first. Uh, and in the first few years, we're, we're sort of tentative. And, and and I thought, no, we can do better. And we got a team in. And a lady called Jane Harris, who who runs it to this day, uh, who's, who's fantastic. And uh, I think the more we did, the more I realised that, 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 that how much stuff needs doing. And... Uh, one thing led to another, and, and Red Rose chairs were doing very well. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give 10% of the business, which was about a third of what I personally owned, to the charity. And so I put all put these shares into the, into the charity, and uh, and we, we're taking it from there. And we're, we're spending now. We we were the first in in COVID and lockdown to bringing an emergency fund to save other charities. Um, we pledged a million pound a week to help keep other charities going. And a good, a good deal of that was spent on Merseyside, but in Cheshire and North Wales as well, where we're from. And, um, I, you know, I get it. I, I work hard at the, the philanthropy now in the same way I worked hard at Redrow. And uh, um, we've just been, I've just been recognised by, um, uh, by the government, really, with the, by, we've just been given some £10 million of match funding from the government. And I, I think we're, we're the, the largest individual charity in the country to get this match funding. There was £75 million available, and we've got 10 of it. So which means we can put an extra £20 million into, in, in, into charities in, in the northwest to to keep them going through this horrible period of the pandemic. So can I ask you a question about it, Steve? Because this is something that often um, fascinates me, that you see people that have been incredibly successful and acquired great wealth and privilege, and then but keep going for it. And it's often like seeing somebody food shopping when they're hungry. They have to keep acquiring more and more. What was your mindset to say, I've got enough now and I want to give back? What was the moment or the catalyst or even the way of thinking that, that because what you're describing sounds so it sounds so obvious outside of it but it can't have been an easy decision to to do what you've done you're quite right Damien it wasn't I mean I had to think long and hard about it because it's counterintuitive you work hard for all this money and then at the stroke of a pen you uh, 
you give literally 300 million pounds away. But I thought, well, you know, I don't need that money. My kids will be left enough. So nobody's going to starve in, in, in the Morgan family. Um, but there are plenty of other people out there that, that will and, and, and that need it. So, um, as I say, I, I, I always work hard. I still do work hard, but I don't work hard for the money. I work hard because I like it. I think before we move on to our final quickfire questions, a quick mention about work ethic. You, you're 68 years old. You've just bought a new building 67. firm. 67. 67 years old. 67 <laughs> years old. Fight for Come those on. extra years at this point. 67 years old, just bought a new building firm. You've made money, given money away, bought football clubs, sold football clubs. You've packed so much in. How much has hard work been at the very centre of all of these achievements? I hear rumours about 10,000 steps before breakfast. Yeah, I do. We, we got a lockdown puppy, and uh, so me and him go for do our 10,000 steps before breakfast every day. Uh, I, I think your brain's a muscle, and uh, like any muscle, use it or lose it. Uh, so to me, I hope I have the ability to be using that particular muscle till the day they put me in the box. And that's it, really. Very good. Right, we have quick-fire questions. Go for it, Damien. Steve, what are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into? Uh, smoking was number one, because I banned smoking in our retro offices in the 80s, way before it became... Oh, I detest, detest smoking. Liars and thieves, I cannot abide. For me, anybody who lies has got no future with me. And anybody who steals is, is out. And um, I suppose laziness is the third one. I think if, you, if you're lazy, you've got what's coming to you. What advice would you give to a, a teenage Steve just starting out on his journey? I think I'd say to him, what do you want? Um, if you want to grow a business and be successful, there's only one formula, and that's you've got to work like hell. You know, if there was a commandment, it'll be thou shalt work like hell. You know, I hear about this work-life balance and, and that's fine. Um, and you can grow a career doing exactly that. But if you want to build a business, you've got to work. Nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to work. How important is legacy to you? I think legacy is massively important to me. And um, I, I, I thought about this question and, and, and I thought... I, asked, I had to deeply ask myself, and I think I came to the conclusion that it was massively important. At 100,000 homes supporting 300,000 people live in a red row house, and I'm very proud of that. That's, that, that's a legacy. Uh, the foundation will have huge funds in it when, uh, when I eventually die, which hopefully not for a while yet. But we will have helped, we already have helped millions of people on the way. And, um, you know, to me, that's a legacy. And my children, um, you know, they're, they're, they're all different. Um, there's five of them plus, plus my stepson. Um, all, and all six of them are completely different personality. But, you know, they're my legacy going forward as well. So I, I can come to the conclusion that it is massively important to me. Are you happy? Yes, I think, you know, you go through life and you have your blips and there are times where you want to kick the cat and even, even though I've never had a cat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you, you know, we all have our moments and, you know, this COVID situation is, um, you could get down on it, couldn't you? But, you know, you've got to keep attacking. Um, and attack, attack, attack has always been my philosophy. And if you attack, you, I'm, for me, 
attacking his happiness, you know, and having a lovely wife and home life is uh, very important to me. And what's your one golden rule to live a high performance life? Uh, back to my commandment, thou shalt work like hell if you want to. As I said right at the beginning, I don't think I've got any skills particularly, and I do mine through endeavour and I'm driven. I drive myself to be happy as well. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's it, yeah, driving hard work. It's been an absolute pleasure to sit and chat to you for, for, for the last little while. We talk a lot on this podcast about fault versus responsibility and living a life where you don't look for blame and you don't attribute fault. You just take the responsibility. And I think you are um, the epitome of that. You know, It wasn't your fault that you were born into poverty or your fault you lost your brother at a young age or your fault that Margaret Thatcher put a sledgehammer through the trade you worked in or your fault that Liverpool didn't come off or any of these things. But every step of the way, you made it your responsibility to still, through sheer graft and bags of self-belief, to make a success out of your life. And what I love about that is that absolutely anyone can work hard and believe in themselves. That's very true. Thank you. Damien. Jake. The reason why I'm so inspired by talking to Steve is that I genuinely do believe there is no secret. Anyone could live the life that he's lived. Yeah, definitely. What really moved me with him was the fact that his philanthropy work is, again, it was just the idea of just commitment, just put yourself out there and do it. Don't overthink it, but just put your money where your mouth is. And I think that trend is something that he did from setting up his housing company at at the age of 21 through to buying football clubs. He's just committed to doing something and then invested hard work behind it. And he's also hugely modest. You know, he spoke about luck all the time, didn't he? But I sort of, I honestly believe that everyone in life gets opportunities, but only certain people see the opportunity. And then only certain people who've seen the opportunity capitalise on the opportunity. And only certain people who capitalise on the opportunity work hard enough to make that opportunity a success. And he does all those things. 100%. I was reminded of uh, some research from a guy called Dr. Richard Wiseman that wrote a book on this years ago called The Look Factor. And he's a, and that's his background in terms of he's a psychologist at Hertfordshire University. This was a huge social psychology study that said, what he found is lucky people just believe that they're lucky. Unlucky people believe that they're unlucky. So it's a mindset thing. So when you hear Steve talking about luck... As a definition from that, he sees opportunity, he takes risks, he, he he gambles just... And the phrase that he uses about luck is another term for just believing. And because he thinks he's lucky, he then sees the opportunities. Absolutely. So it's something around his identity. So when we hear it... And we've heard a lot of our guests talk about luck in that way, but the reality is it's a mindset that they look for opportunities, they look to get on the front foot, they commit when they do it. Whereas... If you believe you're unlucky, you don't see these chances. You can find reasons to talk yourself out of it. And the great thing about mindset is we're in control of it ourselves. Absolutely. Okay, it's that time of high performance when Damien and I chat to a listener who's got in touch to tell us what they make of the way that the podcast has impacted their lives. And this is um, another direct message on Instagram. If you um, if you want to get in touch with us, Damien is at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey and the podcast is at High Performance. We see every message, you'll get a reply. We love to see the feedback. And Rick got in touch to say, 
I just wanted to say thank you for creating the podcast. It's impacted me in so many ways and I'm so grateful. I've always found podcasts quite difficult to completely engage with, with my mind wandering and thinking about the tasks which I have to complete. However, this has never been the case with high performance. I listen every morning on my way to work and it provides me with the focus I need for the day. I work as a GP in London. We're currently facing huge pressures and the recent negative media attention the profession has received has been very difficult to take. Again, your podcast has taught me there will always be people who don't like you or disagree with you. But if you focus on your values and your non-negotiables, then that's enough. I'm passionate about sharing the message with colleagues. So thanks again for what you're doing. And I'm really pleased to say that Rick joins us now. And if you are able to see rather than just hear this, you would know that Rick is sitting in his GP surgery in South London. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I, I hope we're not going to keep you from your patience for too long. But I think it's so important for people listening to this podcast to understand that, you know, there are real world benefits to something like high performance. I'm especially interested in this conversation around sort of negative criticism that we've all seen GPs have been getting in recent weeks which is unfathomable for many of us which podcast episode or which lessons do you think really helped you to deal with the moment that you see that negativity because it's something that so many people struggle with yeah I think I think there's probably not one um podcast that jumps out but I think all of them um I think listening to stories from people from different kind of walks of life and, and people are, who are really high profile and the struggles that they faced um, in their own careers and how they dealt with those struggles. And at the heart of that is, is obviously that mindset and believing in yourself, um, even when others might not. And I think as a, as a GP, as, as you've said, I think we're all doing, you know, not, not just GPs, but everyone else who I work with, we're, we're doing our, our best in in very difficult circumstances at the moment and I think the sort of the attention that we've had recently has has been really difficult to take but I think listening to the podcasts day in day out has has taught me that as long as we focus on what we can do and doing our best you know I think that's that's all that matters and and if we do that we will deliver sort of you know the best care we can to our patients. Are there any other sort of skills or techniques Rick that you've picked up from our guests that that you're able to apply into your practice? Yeah, I think, I mean, there, there are loads. Um, so I think, and I can't remember which podcast I heard this on, but World Class Basics, that really um, shock a chord with me because I think, you know, we've got loads of things that we have to do, but I think if you focus on the basics and you do those basics really, really well and try to do that day in, day out, um, yeah, I think, you you know, you're, you're going to, do your best for, for, for patients. I think attention to detail, really, really important, not cutting corners. And I think that these kind of lessons come out with, you know, a lot of the speakers that you've spoken to. And I think taking responsibility. As clinicians, we, you know, we have a lot of responsibility. We get things wrong. Um, you know, we're, we're human. But I think as long as, you know, if we take responsibility for our actions and learn from those mistakes and try to develop and grow, I think that's, I hold on to those those lessons um, day in, day out. Brilliant. And for people that want to hear about World Class Basics, that was Serene McGeekin, who was yeah. the former manager of the Lions, who came on and spoke to us about uh, World Class Basics. I think what's interesting, Rick, is, you know, we live in a world now where people go to the GP a lot. Um, what percentage of the people you see would you say present with mental or psychological problems rather than physical? 
a huge amount. Um, I would say the vast majority, and even those that present with a uh, predominantly physical problem, actually, if you unpick that, um, there, there tends to be uh, psychological issues at play. And, and actually, I've I've I've, shared, I've used the, the, the podcast with with patients. I've signposted them to it because I just think it's yeah, it's fantastic. And I think it you know, particularly when you're really struggling. Um, to see that other people who you think, you know, you obviously see in, you know, on TV and you think, you know, they're, they've got it all sorted and actually to, to hear that they've got their own struggles, I think is, is really powerful. Uh, well, look, Rick, thank you for getting in touch. Thank you for all you do on behalf of, you know, the people you've never met before, but walk into your yeah. surgery, needing advice, needing help, needing support. Um, and uh, I'm basically just going to tell people that the High Performance Podcast is being prescribed now. Yeah, no, no, it is. Yeah, no, it, it, no, it definitely, definitely is. Honestly, I, um, I try and get it in there as much as I can. Oh, what an interesting conversation, Damien. And I think um, to hear a doctor talk about passing on the high performance podcast to his patients is is brilliant. Um, and I suppose it's a reminder, isn't it, that there are so many ways that we can improve our lives. And of course, you know, if you need to go to the doctor for a physical problem absolutely you should do that but you know you think all the times we've spoken to people on this podcast where they've said I had to make a change to my lifestyle which made a change to my mental health which made a change to my 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 entire life yeah I mean Tyrone Mings is the guest that immediately jumps to mind on that Jake that when he spoke about he'd gone to Bournemouth he was a Premier League player and within a few minutes of his debut he shattered his cruciate ligament and he spoke about how he'd fallen into that trough of despair. And eventually it was about changing his lifestyle that uh, facilitated his recovery and his eventual pr- propulsion into the England team. So it wasn't about necessarily just getting fitter. It was about sort of looking at the influences around you. What were your habits? What, how was he refueling? It was all those factors that were just as significant as the physio sessions that he did. And I think it's important to say that you don't have to, you know, hit a dark place, which is what Tyrone did, to realise the importance of those habits. You know, if you listen to Toto Wolf, good, strong, regular habits is what's made Mercedes the team they are. If yeah. you listen to um, Rick Lewis, the 12 defining principles of his business is what's made his business so successful. In almost every episode, it is the habits. It is the positive habits that have got people to high performance. And I think, you know, the fact that Rick just then came on and mentioned world-class basics from Ian McGeehan. That is the reminder that it doesn't have to be this huge leap in one direction, which is hard to get to and you're not sure where to go. It's just about basics, simple everyday things we all do, but doing those to the very, very best level we can. That is where you really will unlock the magic, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a guy called Vern Gambetta, a famous, he's like an athletic skills coach. And I listened to him years ago and he had a great line where he just said, too many people are looking for marginal gains without getting the basics right in the first place. Marginal gains is only when you've got the 99% basics nailed, then you can look for that extra little shortcut. But too many people want the extra shortcut without the basics being in place. And that's what we're hearing so often from our high-performing guests, that it's about nailing the basics, doing your job. It reminds me of William McRaven, you know, the US military oh, general. Yeah. Um, and by the way, if you want to hear William um, talking to us, you can do so on the High Performance Circle. He gave us a, an exclusive um, look into his life. You can find that at thehighperformancepodcast.com. 
But I remember in his speech when he said, if you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first small task of the day, which then will give you a sense of pride, which then encourages you to do another task and another and another. And even then, if you have a bad day and a miserable day, you come home and your bed is made and that made bed gives you the encouragement that tomorrow is going to be better. And that, I think that's the best example because what making your bed and people will be listening to this going, are you sure making your bed is going to give me a better day? But this is a US military general that's been there and done it and experienced things that you and I never will. And he's spoken to so many people about this. And every time they go, yeah, you start the day in the right way and it it carries on. Well, it's almost like you create a scaffolding effect, don't you? So you put the foundations in and then you can build on those foundations that then you've got the habit of maybe eating a piece of fruit with breakfast. Then you've got the habit of walking that extra stop on uh, where the bus is rather than Uh, riding it all the way so you get into these positive habits that just reinforce the next one and the next one so true um and if you're um if you listen to this and you're thinking yeah but how do i even begin this you don't actually have to change anything in your life you carry on doing exactly the same things that you're always doing but every time you make a decision you just ask yourself do i really need to make this decision or that decision and if it's if it's that decision that is a bit harder but it feels like the right one that's what you should go with um and then the other thing that do you remember when William said, um, if you want to change the world, find someone to paddle alongside you? That's the other thing, Damien, picking people that encourage you to do this stuff. Because if you're surrounded by people that are telling you not to make those good choices, it is so hard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That We need to have people that share some of the same habits because we've said this before on the podcast that naturally we're pack animals as a, a, as a species. We, we like being with other people. We're social so if you can get people that share some of those same habits and intentions and dreams, it can only help you. So there you go. Make your bed, do the right thing, find people that encourage you to do the right thing. And um, it's not about big stuff. It's about those little everyday changes that can make a big difference to your life. And a huge thanks again to Rick, not just for coming on the podcast and for sharing the podcast with his patients, but for the hard work that he puts into the NHS along with everyone else who's been so important to us in the UK and abroad during the pandemic. Um, Damien, thanks ever so much as always, buddy. No, thanks, Jake. Loved it. Me too. Uh, big thanks as well to Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio, to the whole high performance team, including Will and Eve and Hannah. Um, and most of all, though, just a, a huge thanks to you really listening to this. Please remember that there is no secret. It is all there for you. Be your own biggest cheerleader. Make world-class basics your calling card because you deserve it. And we'll see you next time on the High Performance Podcast. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.